robots, and welcome to today's episode of Remedial Studies. Today we are going to be discussing Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. It's been a bit of a ride as we both read this book. I, um, for myself emotionally, as I revisit this novel, probably about six years older with many new, um, many new thoughts and feelings. But Hannah, this was the first time you read this book, right? Yeah, I haven't read it before, so I was totally underprepared for this ride. Basically, I had no, I thought I knew, but I, I didn't know. <laughs> oh, man. There's so many classics, I think, are just like that. But this drama bomb of a book, if you don't know what you're getting into, it's fucking buck wild. <laughs> Well, the internet, okay, here's the thing. It This was kind of like, okay, so you know how I started watching Teen Wolf because I saw all those styles, like Derek gifts, and I thought the show was about styles. And it turns out that it was just a bunch of people making stuff up and out of context. <laughs> and, and that's kind of what happened with this book because if you, if you know about Teen Wolf, you know that that Styles is the fan favorite, but it's actually about, like, his super normal best friend Scott becoming a werewolf. But, like, this, I thought, was gonna be all about, like, Frankenstein and his relationship with the monster, and, like, I thought they were gonna spend a lot of time together, like, struggling to, like, understand each other or something, and that's not what this book is at all, not even remotely remotely close to that at all (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's a lot there's a lot happening so our summary might be a little bit long but would you like to give it an attempt yeah i'm gonna try because i was so i could not even fathom what was happening half the time i was just like what who is this i've never no one has ever mentioned this person before ever but here okay so here it goes kids Hold on. Buckle in. Let's go. Okay, so this starts off not with Frankenstein or the monster, but with some guy named Walton who's on an Arctic expedition, and he's writing to his sister about how he really needs to get a boyfriend. Okay? (laughs) So, I swear to God. No, that's real. That's so real. (laughs) Please continue. So, anyway, they go out into the Arctic, and they're... In a boat, sailing north, and all of a sudden they see this gigantic figure with a sled go zooming across some ice floes. And then a little bit later, they see another figure, like, limp across the ice floe with, like, a broken sled and one dog. And... (laughs) It's- it's Frankenstein. So, they- they pick him up, um, and they put him on the boat. And they nurse him back to health because he's pretty beat up. And Walton has found his boyfriend. He's all about Victor Frankenstein from this point on out. This specifically was one thing I did not remember. Is good fucking lord is this man gay. He is. (laughs) It is insane. We will go into further detail at a later time. But holy shit. He, He is so thirsty. So... What happens is, the, the the first part of this, Walton's perspective, he is writing letters to his sister. 
and it's not clear whether or not these letters will ever reach her or, or not because he's he's in the Arctic and a lot of things could go terribly wrong, but he's basically needs something to do while they're just, you know, I don't know how much there is to do on a boat, you know, in the Arctic on an expedition. Apparently not a lot because the next section of the book is Walton writing down the story that Victor Frankenstein tells him. And it starts out with Victor's childhood and how his parents adopted a noble girl from a poor family who's like laid low. They were like middle class and entrusted with this girl's care. But then both of her parents died and they fell into poverty. So they quote unquote rescue this little girl. And basically the intent is that Victor will marry this girl named Elizabeth. It's real. I you just I don't think you should adopt a child to groom her into a wife for your son, but that's my personal Maybe that's just what people did. Maybe that's just you what know, rich people did. <laughs> I guess I suspect so as much <laughs> drama as there is in period literature about people marrying their wards. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You just why are you marrying a girl who's 20 to 25 years younger than you it's just yeah at least like his dad didn't want to marry her at least they were like of an age that's the only that is the only redeeming quality of this oh anyway that particular moral quandary aside he you know is really interested in alchemy growing up and then eventually he goes off to college in the big city and he finds out that alchemy is not a real thing and that he's like several hundred years behind in his scientific understanding and at first he's sort of resentful of this but he gets a good mentor, a good professor, and he, like, throws himself wholly into the study of chemistry. And he gets really good at it until one day he figures out the secret of creating life. And then he spends a bunch of time on this project where, and this is, like, he's, like, 20 at this point. If we're assuming that, like, he goes away to school at, like, 18 and not like 16 or whenever they actually send kids to yeah. college. He's yeah, he's like max 20 if we go by that metric. Yeah, when this happens. So he's a junior in college and <laughs> he he decides he's going to create life. And it's not really clear how this is accomplished. He is keeping it to himself because he doesn't want to endanger his new friend Walton with this forbidden knowledge because he considers this knowledge like the root of every bad thing that has ever happened to him since so basically he works himself sick and frantic and then one day he does it he creates life and then the second that he's like done this that he's created this this creature which he has tried to make attractive, but I feel like what actually happened he's like I like this nose and I like these eyes I like these lips and they jumbled them all together and it came out like not great. And then stretched some yellow skin over it and was like, done. So he basically makes a nine foot tall. Is he eight feet or nine feet tall? He makes a giant. He's giant. He's like eight feet, I think. He makes a giant man 
and it's not it's not clear how I know a lot of depictions of Frankenstein show him as like sewn up corpse pieces but in the book I don't think it's ever actually portrayed that way I think that's just a thing that happens later I found that really interesting yeah I wonder if that comes from like this Victorian notion of like digging up old bodies for scientific research and why that made it into the popular Mm. imagination the way that it did because he like travels later with the materials that he needs to do this and no one like says anything I feel like if he were carrying around corpse bits it it would be very objectionable (laughs) to his traveling companion those those thoughts on the methodology Mm -hmm. aside he basically immediately recoils in horror from this thing that this it's a person he's made a person he's now uh (laughs) he basically recoils and runs out of the apartment and like is freaking out he's like he realizes at the second that he's been successful that he's made a terrible mistake and is horrified by this violation of against nature that he he has done but his friend his bff from home henry has basically come because everyone is worried about him because while he's been consumed by his research he has not been writing his family and they're like is he okay i don't know and because it's olden times they can't you know facetime so they sent yeah exactly they're not checking to see if he's updated his like twitter (laughs) so they sent his bff henry who's come to go to school uh his father has finally been like okay i guess you don't have to be a merchant your whole life you can you can do some stuff so henry comes to learn some languages because he's gonna go be a colonialist in india probably Probably. That's what that's what young men <laughs> of that time did as well. Yes. <laughs> so they go back up to the apartment and Frankenstein thinks he's going to have to explain what he has done to Henry. But when they get back, lo and behold, the creature's gone. The creature has left. And Frankenstein, instead of being like, oh, no, what horror have I left, you know, let loose in the world? It's like, oh, OK, cool. I don't have to worry about this anymore. At which point, I was like, um... Excuse? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, after that, Frankenstein gets really, really sick for a year, and Henry nurses him back to health, and then he hangs out in Swiss Oxford for a year. Like, basically, just going to class with Henry, he doesn't really want to do science anymore. And then he goes home... And, like, two days before he got there, his brother was, his little baby brother, I think William. William. William was strangled to death. Huh, I wonder uh, who did that. And Justine hit, like, a serving girl who they grew up with who wasn't treated like a serving girl, but was still a servant. Yeah, she was never really their family. Yeah, they're like, oh, but they treated her. And I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm sure they thought they did. She's been accused of strangling him for, like, a necklace that Elizabeth gave William to wear. Because he's doing that little kid thing where he's like, I want to wear, you know, the grown-up thing. And Elizabeth's like, okay, fine. So, of course, like, Frankenstein knows that, like, it's it's the creature that he made. He knows. Just instantaneously. Justine is innocent. She's been framed. It turns out later you find out that she's been framed by the monster 
And anyway, so William's dead. Justine gets convicted and is executed. Frankenstein has, like, guilty fits about it, but not enough to actually say anything. Because he thinks no one will believe him. Mm-hmm. And that's fair, but also... <laughs> yeah, that's valid. You could you could make an effort. And then at that point, I just remember there's a lot of him, like, running around outside being depressed. In, like, very romantic capital R fashion. There's a lot of, like, floating on the lake and climbing mountains in the rain and the mist. And various things like that. Mm-hmm. And then one day he comes across the creature and he goes into like a shack with the creature and the creature tells him like his story and the creature story is equally messed up because, okay, here's, here's the Cliff Notes version of that. The creature wandered around the wilderness, basically scaring uh, like villagers and stuff for a little bit. It was cold and he just eats like berries and then he, like, crawls in this French family's basement and lives there for, like, a year and a half. And he just spies on the French family, who has this whole separate tragic romantic story. I don't even know if we have time to get into I that. Don't, I don't think we got time. It's it's just star clo- star-crossed love and betrayal and... They're French. It's dramatic. Yeah, vaguely racist things about Turkish people. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um after that he he picks up french and he's he loves this family they're good people he tries to he tries to talk to them but he the creature just scares the crap out of like their dad who's blind basically the dad dies of fright and like they get really sad and move away and the monster's like oh woe is me i you know, I'm so ugly and misbegotten, and I will never fit in this world, and I am only fit to be a horror, and so on and so forth. Yes. So he tells Victor all of this, and how he framed Justine, and how he will continue to make Victor's life miserable unless he makes him uh, a wife. Which I find highly problematic, like, what if she doesn't want that? <laughs> Counterpoint, though. <laughs> Did that matter when this was written? I don't know. I wish it had, but... <laughs> Who knows, man? Who knows? Regardless, Victor Victor agrees, and he spends a couple of years basically meandering around Europe, like, not really wanting to work on it, but knowing he has to make enough progress that the monster won't cause him additional issues. So he ends up traveling with Henry again, they end up going to Scotland, and he, like, rents a house on a godforsaken rock where they can't grow anything except sadness. And he makes the monster a mate. But right at the point where it's, like, time to to seal the deal and, and create this this female monster, he basically has a change of heart and, like, destroys all his, his work while the monster watches and from there it all goes downhill the bodies just keep coming the bodies start hitting the floor as they say uh henry shows up murdered by the monster frankenstein is despondent but not despondent enough to say anything about the monster his father comes and rescues him from 
being sad in Scotland so he can go be sad in Switzerland. He marries Elizabeth to make his dad and Elizabeth happy, but what happens is the monster comes and kills Elizabeth on their wedding night, which surprises no one except Victor. Yeah, because that he said that. <laughs> he literally looked him dead in the face and was like, I will be with you on your wedding night. And then, and, and Victor just assumes the whole time, oh, he's going to kill me, bitch. No. He doesn't want to kill you. He's never wanted to kill you. He wants you to himself. Yeah. He he wants you to be as sad and miserable and lonely as he is, and he can only accomplish that not by killing you, but by killing everyone that you love, you idiot. Yes. So, anyway, his father dies of grief. Um, His mom's been dead, I think. I don't know when that Yeah, his happened. mom died in the beginning from, like, scarlet fever or something. Oh, yeah, nursing, nursing Elizabeth. I forgot about that. That's not even, like, on the level of drama that um, that's in this book. Yeah, that, that is, is like, so bottom two. floor. <laughs> so then, after that, he basically just chases the monster around Europe for a while. Until they end up in the Arctic. Because he wants to, he has to destroy this monster with his own hands to keep from whatever. He, this is This is what he's decided upon. And then he, like dies on the ship and i think does walton kill the creature at that point no the last lines of the book are about the creature basically saying um, he was going to destroy himself and then riding off into the sunset oh yeah because i guess yeah that's it like he's yeah anyway so that's frankenstein like 98 percent of that stuff i didn't know happened i know i forgot so much of it had happened because i think the parts we remember the most are the actual narratives of the creature and Frankenstein. Like, like the creature's whole narrative is essentially one long conversation between him and Victor over the course of a day. And then he like goes up the mountain when the sun is setting. Cause of course he does. But I forgot all about Walton. I completely forgot about him. No one has ever mentioned Walton in the entire time that I have like, existed on this planet i don't Mm -hmm. i don't know why that is and also the thing about elizabeth like i'm like this seems important like this is really bothering me but someone is writing like a um uh, a retelling of this book from elizabeth's perspective and making her and doing that thing where they give the woman some actual agency so mm-hmm. I think in that book, instead of Henry going to go find Frankenstein in while he's at college, Elizabeth goes. Mm-hmm. So I don't know anything about it other than that. I do want to read that though. I've heard that's coming out. It does. It sounds really good. And now that I've I've read it, I feel like reading a book where Elizabeth has more agency would be very healing. <laughs> yeah, I think. The main issue that kind of what what stuck with me throughout the course of this book is I found the attitude of the of the creature to be much more sympathetic than it had on previous readings, and that might just be from me being older because I have noticed that a lot of how i how I feel about books changes just by virtue of the fact that I'm older and that I'm not the same person I am when I read it the last time, and so on and so forth. But to me, the whole time, I could not get over the fact that whenever Victor 
is like, oh, this is all my fault. It never felt like he was grasping why it was his fault. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. It felt almost, especially in, in his discussions with Walton, it felt like a grab for sympathy or credibility of some kind and not him being like, I abandoned this thing that I gave life in its first moments of life. And that abandonment has led it to be the person it is today. Yeah, he never he never feels bad about his failure to take responsibility for uh-huh. the well-being of this living thing that he has made. Like, we treat our cats and dogs and fish better than he treated this, this thing person. that he made. This that was a person. And that's the thing. And it reminded me of a little bit of a quote from Doctor Who. This is like early days in the new series. I think it was actually the first season with Christopher Eccleston, where they talk about, he talks, it's it's like a throwaway line, which most of the best lines in Doctor Who are throwaway lines. <laughs> what is life but nature's way of keeping meat fresh? <laughs> uh... And I was thinking about that as I read this book, because I was thinking about what it says about what life is and really i i think what victor learns is not necessarily how to give something life like not how to create a thing with life it's how to reanimate something because by virtue of having a body of an adult male even if it's pieces and parts that person had to live to adulthood at some point and that's something that's brought up briefly in, um, there's so many Frankenstein adaptations, but the one I'm thinking of is actually Victor Frankenstein and the Creature are characters in Showtime's Penny Dreadful. And that's brought up a little bit, is that he has to take these people from previous lives and make them into something new. I was kind of thinking about that as I read through this, and especially particularly the Creature's narrative of how sad it would be, even if you don't know, if there's any sort of residual acknowledgement and memory that you were once something and you belonged to something that through power you had no control over has now been taken from you and how gut-wrenching that would that would be yeah it's really interesting because and i didn't expect this either in the in the book and i know that's not true of a lot of adaptations mhm it's not really clear what exactly he's doing yes. to make this creature. Like, it's it, he's not, as far as you can tell, he's not carrying around corpse bits or anything. He can travel with his materials, and that boggled my mind. Yeah. I noticed that this reading, too. I'm like, what are your materials, Victor? Because you can't travel with, like, for lack of a better word, perishables. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so I have no idea like what what he's doing and he and I think that that's kind of the point is it's supposed to be mysterious because Victor is trying to protect other people from this this dangerous knowledge that he he has gathered that was one of the really interesting things to me because I have sort of a passing interest in the history of science and how ha- and just how like repulsed by the enlightenment era kind of philosophies that this this work felt like it was very it was very I'm not gonna say it was anti-enlightenment but there's definitely a critique of of that quest for knowledge Mm -hmm. for knowledge's sake I definitely agree with that I think it's 
Um, some of that might have been by virtue of the fact that Mary Shelley was a capital R romantic, <laughs> which is all about returning to nature and stuff like that. And rejecting, while it's called natural science, rejecting the inherently artificial nature of the life that creature would have been given. Because he wasn't necessarily born, he was made. And while a lot of that may just be semantics... It's, I think, a distinction that would have been important at the time it was written. Oh, I think, I still think that's super interesting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, given how much, and and this book is is still so relevant because it's like, think about how much anxiety we have about technology and artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And, like, the singularity and how this book is a reflection of the anxieties that they had about science circa, what, like, 1790 or 18... It was published in... What did you say? 1815? 1818. 1818. Yeah, it was published in 1818. I think she started writing it in 1816. Right. So, I think, like, we have anxieties about science now. It's we still have all the same anxieties. We've just shifted down the spectrum. Yeah, exactly. Like we still have anxieties about that whole idea that you can create your own demons when you're trying to play God, even though playing God in and of itself has almost become a cliche. (laughs) It always somehow goes wrong in a lot of the stories about that. One of the biggest examples I can think of in terms of popularity is Jurassic Park. Where they're like, oh, we're going to make a theme park and we just mixed it with frog DNA because we can do it. And that's cool, right? And (laughs) Jeff Goldblum is like, okay, but did you fucking have to? Like, did you really? And that's something that um, I thought of as I read this book. Because Victor is adamant throughout the whole book that he just has this insatiable desire for knowledge. And the whole time I'm just like, no one made you do shit. (laughs) No one made you do anything, you dramatic-ass 19-year-old. Nobody (laughs) made you do anything but you. And throughout the book, there there is this resistance to taking any kind of meaningful responsibility that I think we can look at both in the lens of the relationship between creator and the created that's reinforced with Mary Shelley's allusions to Paradise Lost and things like that. But it it is also a story about the relationship between parent and child in a way that is a lot more intimate than between a god and his Adam, necessarily. And that's not just applicable to Frankenstein and the monster. Like you talked earlier about the relationship, the inherently unequal relationship Elizabeth has with Victor and his parents, where she, there is an expectation for what is going to happen now that she's a part of their family. Like, there, she needs to, there needed to be a reason for her to be a part of their family beyond, she is a living thing that we should take care of because we have the means <laughs> to do so. And Victor's relationship with his father, where he's never honest with him, pretty much ever, even when he knows, like, he knows Justine didn't do anything. And that she was framed, but it's this fear, which is valid in in a way, that stops him from really preventing her execution, even though he sees in real time the effects 
his actions are having. He stops short of really acknowledging that what is happening is as a result of his actions. Like, yes, the creature is this other person who had to decide to do those things. That's true. But, and the creature brings this up himself, what were the factors in that decision? And a huge thing that the creature talks about is, um, and this is brought up, I think the biggest dichotomy is between Elizabeth and the creature, the whole idea of ugliness and how we react to ugliness in the world as a marker of evil. And I found that interesting because of the allusions to Paradise Lost. And I don't remember if he's depicted this way in the book, but it is very common. Bernini was one of, I think it was Bernini was one of the sculptors who fell into this. Everybody was horny on Maine for Lucifer for a while there. <laughs> and uh, they were like, oh my God, he's so beautiful and he's so great, but he's evil. But like, is he? And like that, that <laughs> was such a thing. And the, and the creature, one of the first books he ever reads is Paradise Lost. And he's like, well, this creature, this person who is the monster of monsters, he still has friends. And he's still beautiful. Then what am I? Who is alone and ugly? I, I think that was one of the things that affected me more on this reading. Is the isolation imposed upon the creature that has a lot of factors that are not in his control. Like, he can't control how he looks. He just looks like that. He's a bunch of pieces, parts pushed together by a fucking college dropout. What's he gonna do about that? But I thought that was interesting. I thought it would warrant further discussion because every fucking time Victor mentions Elizabeth, he talks about how beautiful she is and how that informs her goodness. Right. He is very focused on how beautiful, sweet, and docile Elizabeth mm. is. And I just want to puke every time <laughs> that I read I him, read, read his talking about her. You know, it's an, it's a really interesting thing, the way that Victor's fixation on this, the weird foil of Elizabeth and the monster in like the context of the way that this narrative is structured because it's it's like the Russian doll of novels because you have you you have the first doll when you're not sure what is going on because you thought this book was about Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I thought, am I reading the right thing? Because I read it on Project Gutenberg, so I'm like, did I download the wrong file? <laughs> you have Walton writing letters to his sister, and then you have. Victor Frankenstein telling Walton the story, and then you have the creature telling Frankenstein, who is telling Walton, this conversation that they had. And it's just like, how colored is this by Walton's view of Victor Frankenstein? How colored is this by Frankenstein's perception of himself and how he makes him, how he wants to look to Walton? And then you have like, how the creature wants to look to Frankenstein colored by how Frankenstein sees the monster and how he wants to, Walton to see himself and to frame the monster as the enemy. Mm -hmm. It's like this totally bizarre interplay of, of things, of cross purposes and conflicting perspectives. And it's amazing that the monster is still 
sympathetic at the bottom of all of that. And I think it shows just how Frankenstein's just kind of a jerk. He kind of is. That is a good point that I didn't think about. We did talk a little bit about how we wanted to discuss the unreliability of the, of the narrative by virtue of it being essentially one long first person conversation. But that is a very good point. The fact that you can still find sympathy with the monster beyond all of that. And it's a sympathy that Frankenstein, even when he has it, doesn't really seem to engage with. is very interesting because if we're looking at it through all of those perspectives and still being like, I mean, dude, you're still kind of a dick. (laughs) Then that might just be the truth of it, is that he's kind of an asshole. And he did a thing that was wrong that he's desperately trying to to put off as, okay, well, I did this thing, but he did something that was worse and and also stuff. There's this weird internal dichotomy between Frankenstein and the creature that turns into this weird symbiosis where at, at the end of it, they can't live without each other. Yeah, oh, good point. Because the creature at the end of it basically is like, uh, well, I'm done. <laughs> after victor's dead and he didn't kill him he d- he didn't do any of that he's victor dies he's always been very sickly he talks about that a lot he's never had a very good his constitution score is not very high <laughs> but he he's just always been very delicate in that aspect and that catches up with him when you're chasing down people in the fucking arctic as as it does <laughs> And it's um, Walton's understanding that the creature is basically going off into the wilderness to die. And that no one will ever see this new form of life or reanimation ever again. Something about it that, that was so sad to me was that really what the monster was looking for. And this is also, I think, a little bit of, has become a cliche because of this is kind of where it started. So you can also kind of see this in Paradise Lost as well, and a lot of biblical stuff, is what he is really looking for is the love of a father. Ooh. And when he can't get it there, he searches for it elsewhere. That's something I think, even if it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be father, but like the love and approval of a parent. That's true. Yeah, I, I think that, I think what I'm trying to say is I think that yearning is still a very relevant thing for a lot of people and the kind of person you can turn into when that's denied unjustly is something i do think a lot of people still deal with because it's something that still happens it's not something that's always on the level of gods sometimes it's it's like like it's such an insidious trope now the whole idea of daddy issues, which I fucking oh, yeah. hate. Yes. <laughs> but but that's kind of what it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. I get I get what you're saying. And he goes when he's spying on those French people for like a year and a half, the first person he goes to is the father. Mm-hmm. And I think it's partly because he's blind, so that gives him a leg up. But Yeah. I mean he just ultimately wants that that companionship and i think what's interesting too is not just this feeling of abandonment and and needing a relationship with with a parent but it's also like what does it mean to be 
a singular thing to be the only one of your kind, to be so totally isolated and alone in the world. What does that mean? What does that feel like? I mean, that's one of my favorite kind of tropes in sci-fi is is this what does it mean to be made and not born? And I think part of that trope is that feeling of isolation that comes from not having a place in the natural order of things, from being totally displaced. Cuz I think when we say that something is unnatural, we never say that and it's like a good thing. Even though the the line between natural and unnatural is totally a construction. So it's it's really interesting to me because like that that ability to have relationships is part of like your naturalness in that system. You bring up an interesting point that like that feeling doesn't necessarily only stem from like this condition of being the only one of your kind you can also be left behind by everyone else of your kind mm-hmm. and i think that's an interesting dichotomy to explore yeah i i think maybe that might be where some of the sympathy still leaks through and i think it's important to remember how young mary shelley was when she wrote this because when I look back at the creature and look back at how I felt, especially when I was 19, because your girl was going through <laughs> it, like, I felt that shit where you feel like you are alone on your island and no one will ever understand you and that you were not made for the world that you are being made to exist in. I think that's a very, to varying degrees, a very common feeling at that age. I think a lot of people at varying ages, like, you, you go through that. Where you feel like no one will ever understand you because you don't really understand you. And you feel isolated from everybody in your peer groups and, and stuff like that. Now, so most of the time, most people don't react that dramatically to that. But <laughs> it's it's like, like most things that become cliches. It's this, it's that feeling, but like turned up to 11. Right. I, I think for the first time in reading this book, it did become so obvious. And it's obvious to us and not obvious to Victor somehow that the monster just wanted him and that made sense to me when looking at it from the perspective of someone whose first memory is that of abandonment and rejection and having to run away into this world that they knew nothing about where they couldn't speak they couldn't read they barely they didn't know anything and to have be able to survive in whatever way you could only to face that rejection again and again in big and small ways is kind of heartbreaking. No, you should not kill children. You should not <laughs> you should not strangle your new stepmom on her on on your dad's wedding night. Like that is not a thing you should do. <laughs> but this book is a book of extremes. And in that kind of canon that reaction makes sense. Yeah, I mean, plus He's an extreme creature. His mm-hmm. proportions are extreme. The way that he looks is extreme. To react to those conditions in an extreme way is perhaps more to scale than it would otherwise be. Yes, I think that's a very good point. Um, What else did we want to talk about? 
there's so much weird compulsory heterosexuality at work in this book. It's so weird to me. Be, I mean, it kind of makes sense if you knew that if like Mary Shelley was just chilling with Lord Byron at this time, who, oh man, what a dude. But yeah, like Walton, so gay. Henry Claval, who's just trying to be a good friend. <laughs> I swear to God, just the language he uses with Henry, the way Victor talks about him, I'm like, so you're in love with him. <laughs> like, not a joke. I'm like, the whole time, I'm just like, when. When is this going to work out? Because it's almost like he's the real linchpin to Victor's sanity for a long time there. And then you have Elizabeth, who he's viewed, I think, more as a possession his whole oh, life yeah. than a real person. And that's in the first time he talks about her, where he's just like, okay, she's mine now. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> but then you see, like, Walton. Walton's in his own narrative, but then you talk about Henry and... They're full people who have their own things they got to do. But Elizabeth is always a thing in some way. Or she's a means to something. Which maybe, um, I haven't read a whole heck of a lot of literature from this period recently. So I don't know to what extent that's a convention of the time. Or even though it doesn't really matter if it's on purpose, I kind of want to believe it is. Because right. that, I think, informs, not necessarily in, in the sexuality sense, but I think that informs the opinion of Victor a lot. He doesn't see the monster or Elizabeth as a person. <laughs> exactly. Even though they're at opposite ends of the moral spectrum. Yeah, exactly. Like, they're, they're the extremes that he tries to use to keep himself in balance. And it doesn't work. But yeah, the whole time, Victor is like... And and this is a thing that um is in adaptation. Every once in a while, Penny Dreadful again. Rory Kinner plays the creature in that show. He's amazing. So good. Please watch it on Netflix. So I have some... Tweeted us so I have someone to talk to about the show. But he only ever... He's so short-sighted in that he fears for himself. That even when so many people near him have died... And he thinks every once in a while, oh, I should be concerned for their safety. When it counts, he isn't. Yeah, that was that was the thing about the end of the book when Elizabeth dies. Is he is so focused on himself mm -hmm. that he cannot even fathom what the monster is actually talking about. Even though anybody with like anybody else would be like, oh wait, that's what this means. Like the logical thing. Is that he's going to kill Elizabeth so that Victor can feel his misery. Yeah, so he wants Victor to be as alone as he is. From the very beginning, I think, he, he wants to impose the same kind of isolation, that same feeling, not necessarily of abandonment, but of loss, that Victor imposed upon him through abandoning him and running away and then not doing anything. But if anything, I think this book is a story. Don't fucking ignore your problems for two years thinking they won't come <laughs> back to you because they will. <laughs> that's the part of the book where I had to take a second and just be like, that's your reaction is like, oh, good. I don't have to deal with this. And then I'm going to be bedridden for a year. It's like, oh, I, I wasn't ready to be a parent. <laughs> but it also, I think, calls up an interesting point that I don't think many people talk about. 
What was he going to do the whole time? What was he going to do? <laughs> I don't think he even talks about it. What, no. what was the game plan here? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. I got to imagine that you go into it assuming it'll work. But was there no step two? <laughs> was it just like, oh, hey, I did this thing. See you later. It's like step one, make make an animated human creature person. Step two, question mark, question mark, question mark. Step three, three profit. profit. <laughs> <laughs> no one knows. Oh, my God. I guess like he just did it to do it because it was science. And I guess that goes back to your original Jurassic Park point, man, is like. Sometimes we don't think about the end game when it comes to developing new technologies. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's one of the reasons this book remains so relevant is because we have we have ideas that are still so applicable to this to this story. Like you said earlier, we have fears of how far people will go for the sake of advancement, whether that's not scientific knowledge or otherwise. Victor has a speech near the end of the book where he kind of chastises these these sailors who don't want to keep going north because the ship gets essentially stuck in all this ice. They can't move. They can't go home. Some people die, as people were wont to do on such voyages. And <laughs> eventually they all go to Walton, who's the captain, and they're just like, we're going to go. And you're either going to be with us or against us. And Victor tries to, like, chastise these people to be like, oh, well, did you think it was going to be easy and blah, blah, blah. And at some point, you're just like, Victor, people are dying. <laughs> and maybe that's supposed to hint that there's some truth into his insatiable desire or whatever the fuck. But I think more than anything, what it shows is that he is the kind of person who does stuff to do it. And once he sets out his mind... Even when something happens that will cause horrible things to the detriment of himself and the people around him, he's gonna keep going. And that is, I think, the root of the argument that he is the real monster in the book. Because that, that is a weird, ongoing, critical and social conversation <laughs> that, that keeps happening. Is who's the real monster? And I think, for the most part, if you're looking at the person who causes the monstrosities to happen, it's Victor. It's his fault. But you can also say that the cr the creature did monstrous things, like he did them. Victor didn't do them for him. He didn't have to do them. So maybe the real monster is everybody. I was just gonna say that. I was like, I would like to submit a third option. Yes. We're all terrible because... We're all terrible people. Because Victor made the monster... Right, and abandon mm -hmm. him. The monster did terrible things. And, like, no one else could accept the monster because he was so ugly. Yeah. And, like, had none of those things happened, he wouldn't have murdered a small child and, like, eight other people. Yeah, exactly. If human kindness was really as far-reaching as people wanted to believe it was, none of it would have happened. Yeah. And that might be the real, quote-unquote, moral of the story is we're all we're all monsters underneath it mm -hmm. all right robots that's gonna wrap us up for this episode of remedial studies we hoped you enjoyed the, this foray back into classic literature it has been a very 
long time, but this was um, a good one to go back to, I think. We are going to keep the literature train rolling next time because we are doing the next episode in our remedial read-along series where me and Hannah read um, the City Watch strain of the Discworld novels and talk about them and have many, many, many feelings. The next one of that is called The Fifth Elephant. If you are jumping into the remedial studies family at this point, I do recommend you go back and listen to the other ones because they are some of the f- my favorite episodes that we've ever done. And then you can be ready to join the conversation when we get back. What else did we need to do? Questions! Questions. We need questions. Thank you to Mackenzie who sent us a question for the mega spectacular D&D extravaganza that will be the episode after next. But we need more questions. If you listen to this show, you're probably a huge nerd. And we love questions from people who like uh, the things that we're going to be talking about because that's one of the ways um, I feel we can really like engage with material more. So if you have any questions about Dungeons and Dragons in general, tabletop RPGs, role playing in general, or just questions about the, the game that we're both in, that it has been so long since we played and we were all lamenting about it on Instagram, please send those in. You can send those in usually on our Twitter and our Google would probably be the best way. And speaking of Twitter and Google, what are those? Oh, right. I remember what social media is this time. <laughs> so you can reach us via email at remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. You can reach us on Twitter at remedialstudies. You can reach us on Instagram, maybe, at remedialstudies. And our Tumblr is remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. So I think that is everything. Twitter gets updated most frequently because it's easiest and shortest. Uh, That's 100% (laughs) true. Like, I have to make content if I want to update the Instagram. And sometimes that's just hard. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, like, I, you go to school full time, right? And I work full time. And then the show is like an extra 35 hours a month on top of that. So sometimes it just doesn't happen, guys. (laughs) Yeah, we still love you, though. We will not abandon you to the wilderness of Swiss Oxford. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah um on that i think it's it's time for us to go and to show ourselves out goodbye robots bye robots